Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be here with you this morning. I was actually looking at my Google Calendar the other day thinking, how long ago was it since the last time I was here? And it was May 19th, 2019, which is BC before COVID, uh, right? It's like this like watershed marker, right? It's like life just it feels so different. Uh, I don't know where you guys were. I was in Brazil when basically everything was shutting down here in the U.S. And so I just, it's like I left and the world was normal and I came back from Brazil, missions conference, and it was like, wow, the world is a very different place. But grateful uh, just for vaccine rollouts, grateful I get to preach here and uh, we don't all have to wear masks. We've been vaccinated, right, et cetera. And so it's just great to be, feels, feels like on the other side of this. And I just want to personally thank you. Your guys' giving and support has helped uh, plant a church in the east side of Madison. Um, and so your guys' vision of, you know, growing the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches, it's happening uh, through your guys' faithful giving, through your guys' faithful uh, worshiping, through your guys' faithful living out the, the gospel here. And so just want to say thank you so much. Um, a quick little update, you know, on our side, uh, through COVID, we were renting uh, from a school, and that changed with COVID, but God's really provided a really cool spot for us. It's actually called the East Side Club, so it's kind of fun. East Side Church meeting at the East Side Club of Madison, and we're right on beautiful Lake Monona. And so we've been meeting outside as much as we can. So we've got this beautiful lake view, capital. Um, and actually, amazingly, God has grown us numerically through the pandemic, which is really just a huge answer to prayer. And we've just personally seen actually almost more opportunities to just be in people's lives. I know my wife and I, we feel like God just blessed us with getting to know our neighbors in a deeper way because they were stuck at home and they wanted humans to talk to, not just screens, and we happened to live next door. And so God just really provided this cool way of, we started back last May, uh, a weekly outdoor potluck where we'd you know, sit six feet apart. We continued it all through the winter. We only missed two, not two weeks of polar vortex, but others would just do like campfires outside and it's amazing how just through those times, walks with neighbors, God's allowed us to just keep sowing the gospel. And so uh, I know that's your guys' heart too, right? Is that every one of us that loves Jesus is seeking to live more like him and speak of him to others because in Jesus there is real life. Uh, and if that's something you're still exploring, so glad that you are here this morning. And I, my prayer is that this morning you'd be encouraged to see that that really is true, that in Jesus there is real life to be found. Well, that's a little update uh, on, on me um, and Eastside Church. And again, just thank you so much. And this morning, we're going to dive into a passage in Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it to Galatians chapter 3. It's right after kind of First and Second Corinthians, and there's four little books in a row that used to always get mixed up until I remembered, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. So Galatians is the first one of those little four. And we're going to be in chapter 3 today, but I just want to kind of fill us in as to why, uh, why Brandon and, you know, and I picked Galatians 3 for me to, to preach. Galatians is a great book. Uh, it's a book that Paul was writing to this church in kind of the area of Turkey, and there was a big problem that was showing up. And the problem was this. Um, they had come to believe that you were saved by grace through trusting in Jesus alone. And then somewhere along the way, these other teachers start showing up and saying, that's really great that it's all about Jesus, but it's not just about Jesus. You also got to try really hard. You got to keep the religious rules we've got. And if you don't, you're in big trouble. And what started to happen is even Peter, one of Jesus' first 12 followers, he shows up and he starts no longer eating with people that weren't Jewish or who weren't keeping the Jewish food laws. 
he started kind of separating into like the real Christians are over here and they're keeping all these Old Testament religious rules. And then there's those people over there that are saying, some of those rules are fulfilled in Jesus, we can just trust him. And there was this separation, this division showing up. And Paul's tackling this because he's saying there's two problems here. There's the horizontal problem. When you start making it all about how well you're doing, you create camps. You create division within the body. And we're, we're having a problem of unity in the family of Jesus. But Paul says the real issue is that it starts with a vertical problem. Is that you somehow think that there's something you're contributing that makes you okay with God. And you've lost sight of the fact that it is always 110% Jesus that makes you good with God. And so Paul is saying you can't drift from this. Because if you drift from this, you end up in big trouble. And the thing is, on the outside, it might look fine. On the outside, people that are all about trusting in Jesus and people that are about kind of keeping a certain set of rules they impose on themselves can both look like good moral people on the surface. But Paul sees something different. He says, below the surface, there's really a heart that trusts in God. There's a heart that doesn't. And there's no middle ground. You can't say, I'm trusting in Jesus, but I also need to kind of like throw my like eggs in some other basket too. No, if you do that, you actually get cut off from Jesus. It's that serious, Paul says. It's Jesus or nothing. There's no Jesus plus something. And so Paul is, is eagerly writing these people he's, he loves dearly and says, I want you to be careful because you can actually live a life that really is about self and self-control and self-dependence and myself will be good enough. And that message can actually get cloaked with religious language, but still a life that's driven by self instead of a life driven by trusting in Jesus. And so that's what Paul wants to tackle. And that's what I just think again and again, I just see just across the, the landscape of kind of church in the U.S., but also I think in our culture, there's this message that actually all the resources for a good life are found in self. And it can be cloaked in all kinds of different worldviews, but the message is the same. In yourself, there is enough to be okay. And Paul and God wants to remind us, no, in ourselves, there is no hope but there is a great hope in Jesus that you're invited to. So this morning, the main point is, since God's promised blessings come through faith in Jesus alone, stop trying to live by self-effort. Since God's promised blessings come through faith in Jesus alone, stop trying to live by self-effort. So let me pray for us, and we'll read Galatians chapter 3 together. Father, I pray this morning that as you've promised that your word will not come back void but do what you have determined for it to do, that your word would wake us up, that your word would open our eyes to Jesus to see that he alone is what we need. He's enough. He's more than enough. And that you would just help us see that there's any way in which our hearts and our lives are bent around living by ourselves, for ourselves, that you would turn us away from that and turn us to life in Jesus. I pray that even my preaching wouldn't be from my own strength, my own abilities, but your Holy Spirit would empower me to speak your words and only your words with your hearts so that we would be transformed 
to be more like Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen. Let me read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? Have you experienced so much in vain if really it was in vain? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by your observing the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says... Whoever does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Well, we're just going to walk through this passage kind of in three sections. Verses 1 through 6 Paul just lays out that the blessings come by faith. And then verses 7 through 9, he says, Therefore, that means that those who are part of the family are those who have faith. And then he's going to finish by contrasting the way of self-reliance through works and the way of faith and show why faith is so key. So he starts right away in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, right? You can just hear this kind of pleading tone like, you idiots, what are you doing, right? I mean, Paul's just bringing this, and he's like, who's bewitched you? Like, has someone confused you? Someone put a spell on you? And he says, don't you remember when, when you started saying, I need more than Jesus, did you forget, he says in verse one, that before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as, as crucified? He's saying, don't you remember? I made it super clear to you that Jesus had to die, If Jesus didn't have to die, then why would God the Father have sent him to die? Like, if you can be saved some other way other than through Jesus dying for you, why did Jesus die? Don't you remember that? I was thinking about this when I was chatting with a friend a couple years ago. And he was was just talking with me, and he was saying, you know, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. Like, why do you have to trust through Jesus? Like, why couldn't God just save some other way? And I was like, that's a great question. I, like, I don't know, 100% know, but I can tell you this. I have kids. If I could save your life any other way other than sending one of my kids to die for you, I would pick that other option. And so if God the Father sent his son to die to rescue us, there is no other way to be saved. He is a much better father than I am. It is so clear, this has to be the only way. And Paul says that in chapter two, verse 21, he says, I don't set aside the grace of God, 
For if righteousness, if being counted right, could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If you think in some way you can contribute to your own being made right with God, your own being okay, then you're effectively saying Jesus died for nothing. That's weighty. And he reminds them in verses two through five, he says, remember, like, or verse three, are are you so foolish? Did you begin with your own striving? No, you began with the Spirit. He says in verse two, "Did, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And there's all these stories in the book of Acts of their church where people heard the good news that Jesus died to rest and they believed and the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them. And it was evident. And it wasn't because they did a bunch of good deeds. They didn't earn some merit badges. They just trusted. And so Paul's saying, you've experienced all this. You know it. You have personally experienced the transforming power of God through his spirit. And now you want to be like, well... Thanks, God, but there's some things I got to do on my own now. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why would you switch from trusting to self-effort? See that in verse 3? Are you now trying to finish by human effort? But I think that's a trap it's easy to fall into. There can become a point in your life, maybe. Maybe you're wrestling with it now. Maybe you can look back on it where you've recognized, man, In order to be right with God who is perfect and I'm not, I need someone to rescue me. I don't just need some good advice. I need rescue. And you trusted in Jesus for that. And then along the way, though, what can sneak in the back door is God loves me because of Jesus and because I've been really faithful in doing my Bible reading and because I've been doing a really good job of reaching my neighbors and because I've been doing a really good job not losing my temper Or conversely, man, I trust in Jesus, but I don't know if he loves me anymore because I really blew it as a parent this week. Maybe if I could just be a little bit better in my parenting this week, then God would really be okay with me. And what's happened is we've started to allow self-effort to determine how God feels about us. It's sneaking in the back door. That was my own story. I kind of grew up uh, in a a church my whole life. My parents became believers when I was six months old. I always knew God was holy, and I always knew I was not, and I knew I needed Jesus. But subconsciously, what I really believed was he was just kind of like a judge just waiting to like strike me down with lightning if I stepped out of line, you know? And I'd try really, really hard to be good. And then God got, God got a hold of my heart at a really low point. When I was in high school, I nearly committed suicide, and God rescued me from that and just spoke in my life and said, Michael, no one loves you like I do period. Not because of what I was doing or not doing, but just because of Jesus. But I still have had to kind of keep coming back to learning this lesson because it's so easy for me to think only if I'm good enough, only if I try hard enough, only if the scorecard and the boxes are ticked, am I okay? And it's so easy for that just to be my default way. I don't know about you, but that's where our culture says, right? I mean, in school, You get a grade for trying hard enough, doing well enough, right? You get promoted, not just because, but because you worked hard. Everything in our culture says you are only good enough if you do enough. And then here comes the good news of Jesus and says, no. That's not how God runs his world. Because if it is, we're toast. God runs his economy on grace. 
It's just by hearing and trusting. And I really think the word trust is a good one for faith. It's not just this easy believism, it's this deep trust. It's saying, God, I trust you when you say, I am not perfect. I trust you when you say you're willing to rescue me just if I believe you. I trust you when you say that today when I screwed up, you still love me. I'm going to trust you even if I don't feel that. That's what faith is. It's this deep trust. Uh, Francis Schaeffer has this great quote where he says, the whole Christian life is simply trusting in Jesus to save you and walking in dependence on the Spirit moment by moment. The whole Christian life is nothing but trusting in the blood of Jesus to save you and walking in dependence on the Spirit moment by moment. Every moment of the day. Every day. And Paul says, if you're wondering, yeah, but, you know, because he's writing to a lot of Jewish people that become Christians. He's saying, if you're wondering, does this contradict the Old Testament, all the stories? He says, no, look in verse 6. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, before he was circumcised, before he did anything, it says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that word righteous means you are considered perfect. Just because he trusted God, God says, I count you as being perfect. That's the pattern. The way we receive blessing, the way we receive God himself, the spirit indwelling us is not through trying hard. It's just through trusting and what Jesus did for us. And that leads to verses seven and nine where we see that therefore that means that those who are in are simply those who trust. Look at verse seven, he says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. See, there, there's been this division of like, only the people that really measure up are really the real Christians, the real children of Abraham. And Paul's like, no. Abraham's the pattern, remember? It's those who trust like him that are in. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. Doesn't matter if you grew up in church or not. Doesn't matter how well you did in your Bible reading this last week or how kind you were to your coworkers. It doesn't matter. What matters is do you trust in Jesus? If yes, you're in. It's that simple. And that ends the debate about who gets to be in because the answer is anyone can be in. The only truly inclusive community because it's not based off what you do. If you have any type of community where the bar to get in is something you have to do, then there will be those who pass the bar and those who don't. But when the whole point of the community is you just have to admit you're a screw-up and you're in, anyone can join. That's why a group like AA can get so many different people walk in there, right? Because the only requirement to walk into AA is you have to say, I'm a total screw-up and I need help. And it's no accident that AA was started by a Christian. They got that. They got that is just... Level playing field. Anyone can walk in. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter what you've done in the past. If you just admit, I'm a screw up and I need rescue, you're in. Everyone is welcome. And a world that's calling out and eagerly saying, we want this diverse, beautiful, inclusive community, the answer they're looking for is in Jesus, in his community. And Abraham is not just the pattern, but he's really the basis. Look at verse eight. It says that scripture foresaw that God would justify, declare the Gentiles non-Jews by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. He's saying even when God first picked Abraham and said, I'm gonna make you a great nation, you'll bless all the nations, 
the plan was never to just be about one people. It was always to bless all peoples. And if it's through ethnicity or doing enough, then it can't be for all peoples. Not all the peoples had the Jewish law. Not all the peoples came physically from Abraham. But Paul's pointing out that in Abraham's story, you see that from the beginning, Abraham is going to be the father not biologically of children of faith, but by being the pattern of trusting in God. So, verse 9, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so when you read the Old Testament, don't view it as in contradiction to the New Testament. Paul's here making the point, no, it's all the one same story. It's always been about grace. It's always been about trust. The problem is not the Old Testament. It's how it's being abused by these false teachers to say, you've got to be perfect in order to be okay. Instead of seeing the whole point of the Old Testament law was to say, here's how you should live. And you really should strive for that, but you're never going to make it. And so you need a savior. And when you read it that way, it is an incredible part of our Bible to read. And so I just want to ask the question, like, do you really believe that the way in is just through trust? Or is there something still in the back of your brain, this belief that maybe, like, I've got to do a little more? So real practically, when you find yourself falling short, maybe it's in parenting, maybe it's at work, maybe it's in marriage, maybe it's in any other area of your life, you know you fall short in something. What's your reaction in that moment? Do you go, man, I'm such a screw up. I better put myself in the doghouse. And maybe if I just kind of clean myself up and try really hard, then I can come back to God. If that's your response, you're saying self-effort is what rescues. But instead, you're inviting that very moment you screw up and you're like, I am the worst person in the world. You're invited to say, Jesus, I feel like I'm the worst person in the world. But you said, if I just trust you, I get to be counted as perfect right now. Isn't that amazing? Right now in that moment. Well, let me ask you, when you share your story, if you, if you are a Christian, do you share about maybe going to a Bible study or knowing you need to be a better person? Or do you, when you share your story, do you talk about Jesus? Because if your story doesn't involve Jesus rescuing you, then I think you're missing something. You might have drifted into a self-effort life cloaked in religious words, but it's missing Jesus. And Paul wants to say, don't miss Jesus. I want to say that the seriously, don't miss the good news of Jesus. It's so much better than striving and falling into the doghouse and working hard again. I think some of us sometimes might be like this weird version of the prodigal son story. If you know that story, or if not, I'll just quickly recap it. A young son tells his dad, I wish you were dead so I could have, all, so I could have your money. And the dad says, okay, I'll just give it to you. And he goes and he blows it. And he's just in utter poverty. He wants to eat the pig food. He's so desperate. He says, you know what? It's better for me to go home. Even a servant in my dad's house at least gets like three square meals a day and a bed to sleep in. So he goes home. I mean, he has embarrassed his dad in a culture of shame and honor. And yet the dad runs to him, embraces him, throws a cloak on him, puts a ring on his finger and says, we are throwing a party because you're back. He doesn't even let his young son finish his apology. That's how gracious the father is. Can you imagine in that moment, the young young son said, dad, sorry, I can't have this robe. Take it back. Here's the ring back. Take your sandals back. I'm not coming to the party. 
if you can just point me to the servants' quarters, I'll work really hard. I've added up the math. If I work for, you know, 32 and a half years, a little overtime, maybe shorten to 30, then, then, then I can come home. Can you imagine if he did that? How insulting it would be to the father who's just welcoming him back. And yet, do we sometimes do that? Do we sometimes say, thanks, Jesus, but I got to work hard. And he's like, why? Just come back to the table. There's a feast waiting for you. No entry fee. But you got to come with empty hands. The one thing you can't do is try to show up to the potluck bringing something. I've provided everything. Have you ever tried to go to a potluck and bring nothing? There's like something ingrained in us, right? Where we're like, can't do it. You got to bring something. Even if it's just like picking up cookies on the way from the store, right? Like we don't like going places bringing nothing. We want to provide something. And yet, no, you can bring nothing. That's the only requirement. Bring nothing and you're fully welcome. Well, why? Why is this coming empty so key? That's what Paul lays out in verses 10 to 14. He says, because there's two ways to live. There's the way of self and there's the way of trust. And the way of self is this, verse 10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And skip to verse 12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, Whoever does these things will live by them. Here's his point. He's saying, if you want to live by self, you can do it. It's very, there's a very simple requirement. Be absolutely perfect in word, thought, and deed every moment for your entire life. If you do that, you can be okay with God. Go for it. Give it a shot. I'm not going to make it through today if I try that, right? But that's, that's the standard. That's what the law says, Right? Like if you think about it, like when, when it says 55 on the speed limit, if you're driving over 55, a cop can pull you over. And you can be like, oh, I was on the way to this. I was running late. doesn't matter. The law has no emotion. It says, here's the law. You broke it. You're fined. End of story. There's no grace in the law. It's not meant to be of grace. It's not meant to be of trust. It's just meant to say, here's the standard. Keep it or else. And Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. And he's saying, look, read your own scriptures. If you want to live that way, you have to be perfect. And if you are perfect, you'll get life. And the thing is, sometimes we try to get around this as a culture individually by just trying to kind of lowering that standard, right? We're like, well, when God means perfect, he doesn't really mean perfect. He just means like mostly good, right? I mean, like I'm not as bad as those people over there. You know, like I'm a pretty decent person. I'm sure I'll be fine, right? We try to to minimize it. But you know what happens when we minimize God's sense of justice? We actually end up with a horrible God to follow. A God who is so unloving, he doesn't care about righting wrongs. I don't know about you, but as I've watched our culture, I've, I've been intrigued by this phrase, no justice, no peace. I'm like, that's true, actually. When there's no justice, there can be no peace. And God actually cares so much about justice he was willing to send his son to die to satisfy it because God loves. And when you love people, you love justice. And we have all wronged one another in God in some way, shape, or form. And God is too loving to lower the standard. Francis Schaeffer, again, one time was talking to a bunch of college students who were asking, like, is this really okay? And he said, okay, I tell you what, let's get rid of God's law. 
Imagine that unbeknownst to you, there was a little recorder around your neck that recorded every time you said to anyone, you should or you shouldn't. And when you die and stand before God, God, God will say, I tell you what, I won't judge you based off my standards. I'll judge you based off your standards. Let's play the recording of everything you said people should and shouldn't do. And if you perfectly kept your own standard, I'll let you in. How many of you would make it? And the students were like, we're screwed. So yeah, that's right. Like We can't even keep our own standards, never mind God's perfect standards. And yet, if you try to go it on your own, that's what you're up against. So is there another way? Yes, verse 11. Clearly, no one is justified or declared right before God by the law as in obeying the law because the righteous will live by faith. And that's a quote from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk where God was inviting Habakkuk to trust him when things looked bleak. That's how the righteous person lives, by trust in God. That's how Abraham lived. He trusted God when God said, I will give you many descendants, and he didn't have a single kid. Right? It's like basic biology. I can't have grandkids if I don't have kids, God. God's like, don't worry about it. Just trust me. And he's like, "Uh, okay, I'll trust you. No evidence, just trusting God. And the reason why this is such good news is because we can trust that God did what we couldn't. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, or sometimes it's written on a tree. Paul again is quoting the Old Testament and saying, if you're hung on a wooden pole, a tree, a cross, that shows that you've been cursed by God. But Jesus wasn't cursed because he did something wrong. He took the curse of our disobedience and paid the bill. So that, verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the nations, the Gentiles, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, by trusting, we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. Because Jesus took the curse and paid the bill, we can, if we just trust in him, we are viewed as being perfect. If you've trusted in Jesus, anything God says about Jesus is now true of you. This is an amazing thing. If you've trusted in Jesus, what God thinks of you is you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. And he says that over you the moment you screw up. Because he's not seeing you, he's seeing Jesus. Or, you can try to stand on your own two feet and measure up. Those are the two options. Which one's better? And Jesus told a story about this. He talked about two people that came to the temple to pray. One was a good religious teacher, the kind of person you probably actually want to hang out with, to be honest, and have friends with, and to have in your small group, because they tithe to the church, they read their Bible every day, they're regular in prayer, they're so, super willing to volunteer and serve, But his prayer was, thanks God, I am pretty fantastic. And then there was a guy who of a tax collector, equivalent maybe of like a drug dealer or a pimp. And he shows up and goes, God, I am a total screw up. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, you know which one went home okay with God? It wasn't the guy doing all the volunteering and the serving and the tithing and the bowering prayer because his heart wasn't actually trusting in God. It was trusting in himself. It was the screw up. He's the one that's part of my family. 
so upside down and beautiful because, again, it means that anyone can get in. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to admit you're not and look to the one who is. But you can't do both. You can't live on your own two feet and trust in Jesus. And later in chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul says these sobering words. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law, you know, living by self-effort, you've been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Those are sobering words. But there's an invitation afresh this morning. You just have to trust. You just have to say, God, help me. I admit I'm a screw up afresh and I need you. I need you to forgive me. I need you to empower me to live in a way that I cannot live on my own. And the good news is he always answers that prayer every single time. And he empowers you to live and to love and to make disciples and to be a better spouse, a better parent, a better coworker, a better neighbor. But it's not by your self-effort. It's by God empowering you through his grace and love. And the thing is, this is so hard for us. We just have to constantly be on guard against it because our entire culture, right? Like our whole American culture is what? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And Jesus says, no. Leave your bootstraps untied. I just take them off, walk in barefoot. I don't care. I just want you exactly as you are. And so let me ask us this morning, as you think about your story, as you think about how you walk through life, are you aware of your deep need for Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need you, I'm a screw up afresh? Is that your heart posture? Or is your heart posture, I've got to try harder today, I've got to be better? The thing is, when you trust in Jesus, you will find that the Spirit will produce fruit in you. He talks about that in Galatians 5. Read that later. You will find yourself more loving, more joyful, more patient, more kind. But it won't be because you're trying harder. It'll be because you're more aware of your need for Jesus, and his power in you will flow out from you. This morning, are you trusting in Jesus? You're invited for the first time for the one millionth time to say, I need you, Jesus. Would you help me to live in awareness of you so that what fills my heart is joy and I have something to share with others because I don't come to them sharing, here's a list of things to do, but I get to share, guess what? You feel like a screw up? Join the club. I've got good news for you. There's a savior. He loves to save people like us and transform us. And we get to now come to the part of service where we actually literally remember this. It's communion. Communion isn't this magical thing, right? It's just a cup of juice and a wafer. But in God's kindness, because he knows we're physical creatures, he gives us a physical thing to remember. None of you showed up bringing stuff for communion today. You came with empty hands, and if you've trusted in Jesus, you're going to go and receive something that you did not earn or buy. And it's a reminder that Jesus provides everything and you come with nothing. And that's worth rejoicing in. And so if you're someone who has trusted in Jesus for that, you don't need to be a part of this church family, you're just, you, you've trusted in that, then you're welcome to take communion as we continue to worship. If you didn't grab the little communion uh, cup thing, it's in the back bowl over there. If you're someone this morning that you recognize you haven't trusted in Jesus, 
we are so glad you're here. But instead of taking the symbol, we invite you instead this morning to just take the time to stay in your seats and actually call out to the reality, Jesus himself, and invite him to rescue and save you. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll worship and take communion together. Dear Jesus, I just recognize for some in this room right now, they might be struggling to really believe that you would love and forgive this way. That the sense of of failure or shame runs so deep and the message has been so ingrained in them from maybe parents or teachers or bosses or just culture at large that they have to do better that it's hard for them to believe. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes to see that it really is true and that they would taste and see Jesus, that you really are as good and forgiving and loving as you say you are. I pray, Father, for those who have trusted in Jesus before, but maybe afresh they're realizing, man, I've just been drifting. Call them back to your good news. And God, I pray the fruit of this would be joy-filled lives that are full of love towards others and lips that eagerly speak of the good news of Jesus so that others might come and do the same. I pray this in your name. Amen.